Blog Talk Radio. Hi, I'm author and publisher Tracy L. Flatten. It's my belief that the most interesting, creative, and original voices today are heard outside of the big corporations, studios, and galleries. Individuals of courage, inspiration, and vision are seizing the opportunities to create and promote their art themselves. I'm here to support them and to bring their stories to you. On this show, I'll interview independent artists of all kinds, unusual thinkers, and even some healers about their process. How do they do it? How do they start with an idea and bring it to life in the world? This show intends to illuminate the journey. Feel free to call in to 516-453-6052 with questions or live chat with me at blogtalkradio.com slash independent artist thinkers. Great to have you with us. Hi, this is Tracy Slatten, hosting Independent Artists and Thinkers. I am so happy to welcome you to the show. We have a great show lined up for you today. I'm really excited. And I'm very grateful and humbled that so many people are listening into the show um, live and in the archive. So thanks for tuning in. I hope you're getting a lot out of the episodes. I created this show to support those brave souls who are operating outside the structures of the big established corporations and pre-programmed mindset. As the intro to the show says, I intend to illuminate the unusual journey and to bring it to you. I'm interested in alternatives to conventional thinking and conventional answers. Please do call in with questions or comments to 516-453-6052. You can also live chat me at blogtalkradio.com slash independent artist thinkers. And I'm on now. I'm, I'm The chat window's open, so chat in with questions if you have them. Email me in between shows if you want to suggest a guest or have me ask questions of a particular guest. You can reach me at Tracy at TracyLSlatten.com, and that's Tracy, T-R-A-C-I. In the coming weeks, we've got some great guests coming on, very exciting. Dr. Bruce Cole, a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., will be on next week at a special day and time, Monday, August 3rd at 11. Um, his special time to accommodate his schedule. He'll talk about art and architecture in our country's most public venues and our country's heritage of art. Very cool. On Thursday, August 13th at 1 p.m., Dr. David Rico, one of my favorite authors, will be on. Dave Rico is a union psychoanalyst and author, and he's written some books I really love, including How to Be an Adult and The Power of Grace. And um, the week after that, we have Joyce Strand, who's a mystery author, and she will be on. So tune in and keep checking the website, independentartistthinkers.com, and the Blog Talk Radio page to find out who will be on the show. I am delighted today to have mezzo-soprano opera star Elizabeth Deschamps. So excited to have her. The opera world is completely in love with her. She's mesmerizing audiences around the world. I want to mention right now that on August 1st, radio station WFMT in Chicago will be broadcasting The Barber of Seville from the Los Angeles Opera, in which Elizabeth sings the role of Rosina, for which she received absolutely rave reviews. That's at noon central time, 
And there's a kind of a strange link, so I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to tell you, go to WFMT.com and look for their opera broadcast. And that's August 1st at noon central time. So about her bio, and it's really fascinating. Here's a quote from Edge, San Francisco. Quote, DeShong sings like a vocal giant. Her lowest notes have body and depth. Her mid-range is rich and compelling. And her highs are dispensed with a freedom that many a mezzo daily prays for. End quote. When Elizabeth DeShong sang the title role of Rossini's, and I'm going to mispronounce this, La Cenerentola at the Glyndebourne Festival, the Guardian wrote, this is, quite simply, one of the great operatic performances. It is dominated by DeShong, whose voice combines a contralto opulence with blazing top notes and some of the most staggering coloratura you will ever hear. Next season, Ms. DeShong will perform multiple roles in the Metropolitan Opera's new production of Berg's Lulu, conducted by James Levine, followed by Fenana and Nabucco in at Lyric Opera of Chicago, and Calbo and Rossini's Maometto II at the Canadian Opera Company. She will also perform Handel's Messiah with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Sir Andrew Davis. Mr. Shang's opera, operatic and orchestral engagements during the 2014-2015 season took her to the Canadian Opera Company for performances as Suzuki in Madame Butterfly, the Orchestra of St. Luke's for Mendelssohn's, I'm going to mispronounce this, because I don't speak German, Die Erste Walpurg's Night in Carnegie Hall, the Wiener Staatsopera in Angel- for Angelina in La Cenerentola, and the Los Angeles Opera where she performed Rosina in The Barber of Seville. In addition, Ms. Deschamps will sing Elgar's The Kingdom with the Radio Symphony Orchestra in the Netherlands and the Royal Flemish Orchestra in Belgium, the Mozart Requiem with the Dallas Symphony Orchestra, the Verdi Requiem with the Louisiana Philharmonic Orchestra, and Hermia in Britain's Midsummer's Night's Dream at the Festival Aix-en-Provence. Um, in 2000, the 2013-14 season, Ms. Deschamps sang two Hermias at the Metropolitan Opera, she sang um, at the San Francisco Opera. She performed Handel's Messiah at the National Symphony Orchestra, Bernstein's Jeremiah Symphony with the Radio Symphony Orchestra Vienne under the direction of Marin Alsop, and the Mozart Requiem with the Cleveland Orchestra, um, Cleveland Orchestra under the direction of David Robertson and with the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra in Carnegie Hall conducted by Manfred Honeck. Further performances of note include Mafio Orsini in Lucrezia Borgia with the San Francisco Opera and English National Opera, Angelina in La Cenerentola at the Canadian Opera Company, and Hermia in A Midsummer's Night's Dream at Lyric Opera of Chicago. The recipient of numerous awards, Ms. DeShong received the Washington National Opera's Artist of the Year Award in 2010 for her debut performance as the composer in Richard Strauss's Ariadne off Naxos. Her portrayal of Mafia Orsini in the San Francisco Opera's production of Lucrezia Borgia was released on DVD on Euro Arts Music and Naxos of America, so you can look that up probably on Amazon. So that's a pretty amazing bio. And Elizabeth, welcome, and thanks for being on the show. No, thank you for having me. Well, I'm really excited. I, you know, My husband found you online. He has a big tradition of music, classical music and opera, and his family, um, his grandfather oh, was a concert pianist, and so he found you, oh, and he wonderful. said, yeah, he said, you have to have this woman on your show. She's amazing, and I went and listened to a bunch <laughs> of YouTube videos, and your voice is just amazing. I mean, you're extraordinary. Oh, thank you. Thank you. No, thanks a lot. So I have to ask, how did you get started? How did you begin your journey, and what has it taken for you to arrive at the place where you are currently? 
What training do you have? When did you know you were going to be a singer? Was music a major presence in your home when you were growing up? What did you think you would be? Do you come from a musical family? Tell me about your childhood and just start going and lead up to now. Well, let's see. <laughs> I guess I'll I'll go way back just to kind of where I where I came from. Um, my father is a United Methodist minister. My mother is a nurse. Um, and I can't remember a time when we weren't either listening to or making music in our home. Um, so certainly church was um, an outlet for me to sort of learn how to read music, to practice harmony, um, to, to kind of learn to express my voice. And while music was in our home, it wasn't really opera. Opera wasn't in our home. From the moment I was able, though, we would sit down at the piano and sing together. Both of my parents um, sing and play piano, not professionally, but they, they did take lessons. And I have an aunt who is a contralto. My dad even played saxophone and bassoon in his high school band. Um, and from the moment I was able, we, we would sing, uh, mostly Rodgers and Hammerstein tunes, church music, I think the occasional Carpenter song. Um, I have photos of myself sitting on top of the piano at our house, dressed in red like patent leather shoes and white gloves and probably underpants, just belting out songs at the top of my lungs. And really, ladies like Barbara Streisand and Bernadette Peters and Bette Midler were popular with my parents. And I think that kind of put it in my mind to be some version of a confident, outspoken showgirl of sorts, that that was the type of lady I wanted to become, even though I'm naturally a bit more reserved. And I think that the competitive side of myself, the one that wants to go after something, but go after sort of the, the biggest, best thing. And to me, after starting my training, that that seemed like opera. That And lots of people use the the sort of metaphor for it, but that opera is sort of the Olympics of singing. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do music and I'm, and I'm going to sing, then, you know, if my voice teachers tell me that I have this voice, I have this instrument naturally, then, then I want to go to the Olympics of singing. I want to, to make my goal opera. So it was now, I didn't know exactly like how to get there. <laughs> So opera is ultimate. Training. Yeah, you know, if if I was going to do it, I knew that training classically, training my voice to sing opera would also train it to then really do anything I wanted to. You know, I I would have the technique that would allow me to be flexible. So if opera didn't work out or I decided to go a different way, you know, my voice would be there and it would be ready and primed to take on any challenge that would present itself. And I found wonderful teachers growing up. I was very lucky. I grew up in Sealands Grove, Pennsylvania. And that's the town where Susquehanna University has its campus. Very small. I wouldn't necessarily expect anybody to right away know where that was. But I had a wonderful public school education that gave me really quality instruction and opportunities to, to perform. And from there, I, I found my private study teachers. And even though I grew up singing, I started my formal music training as a pianist. I started well, studying piano in, in third grade. <laughs> let, let me ask you a question going back to opera. Uh, you and I had discussed this yeah. a little bit before the show, but 
when Sabin, my husband, first found you and he said, you have to have this woman on your show, and he emailed through the contact form on your website, which is elizabeththeshong.com, I said to him, wait, opera, mm-hmm. how's that – um, how's that unconventional? How's that independent? And he, he's like, are you kidding? And, I, and then I realized he was right, that opera is no longer conventional. A couple hundred years ago, maybe it was, but now it's really, you have to think outside the box. So, you know, besides it being the ultimate singing and being the Olympics of singing, you know, why is opera relevant to today's world? How's it relevant now? Well, I mean, I think I think it's always been relevant. It's always introduced us to broader cultures. It's introduced us to topics outside of our own sort of comfort zone. You know, I'm I'm I sang opera in English in France this summer. I've sung you know the title role in La Cenerentola in Italian in Vienna. I, I knew I'd you know, I I think that. <laughs> You know, no, no, that's all right. <laughs> but that's the thing. I mean, we learn through opera. We learn things outside of our own comfort zone. And I think that that's always appealing, and especially in such a global community now. With, with you know, the Internet brings us closer to everyone. And I think opera has been doing that for years. Do you, you know, think we've learned was... about cultures through this art form. So were you, was it outside your comfort zone when you first started studying I mean, yes. I, I, I certainly didn't grow up speaking or learning Italian in school. You know, I it was a style that wasn't familiar to me. But, I mean, music of all forms has a power to sort of go above and beyond those comfort zones. I think, I think that's what appeals. Music mm-hmm. in general appeals to people because of that. And I think opera is no different. And certainly today, I mean, opera is every bit as vibrant and colorful and alive as as genres that may get a little more attention, say musical theater. You know, people say Broadway. I saw a show on Broadway. Well, you know, opera's there too, and it's it's just as colorful and alive and relevant today as it ever was. I think it's such a spectacle. I mean, to go to the opera is to go to a glorious spectacle. I also like going, yeah. when we go to the opera, I get to dress up, and it's such a casual world that I don't dress up that, you know, and I'm a, a novelist, so I work at home in my yoga clothes. Sure. To go to the opera to go see Tosca or, or something, I mm-hmm. put on a really beautiful dress and great shoes, and, <laughs> you know, and then we go, and it's a, it's a whole event, like it's a whole evening, even yeah, for not it, operas that aren't as long, there's, it's still this glorious sure. spectacle. Well, that's, I mean, that's the thing. And there's such a variety in opera. You know, you might go to one thing, one piece that doesn't resonate with you, but you'll go to another and it'll be something completely different. But I don't think you'll walk away from opera going, I don't like opera. You know, I think most people that go, certainly everyone I've met that has tried opera for the first time, they've walked away going, wow, that was really something. I would like to see more of that. And for those that haven't gone, I think there are some stereotypes or misconceptions about what opera is. But, you know, as much as, as, much as it's fun to get dressed up and go and do something that seems out of the ordinary, there are lots of programs that also bring opera to the public in a casual, very approachable way so that you can get an introduction in a way that is comfortable to you. 
certainly the Met does broadcast now at movie theaters, of which I've been a part of, I think, three at this point. You know, and I and I have one coming with Berg's Lulu. You know, it's it's a chance to go to some place comfortable, easy, just walking out of your house and going. But you get to experience opera, in you know, in a grand way. So I think there's lots of ways to get introduced. So in terms of the preconceptions about opera, how do people respond mm-hmm. like who haven't met you before when you say I'm an opera singer, and if they don't know? they're not as familiar and they don't realize that you've really taken opera by storm like and they so they're not familiar what do they say when you say I'm an opera singer well most most of the people kind of go wow <laughs> you know even if they don't understand i think there's an idea that it's this that it's a big grand thing and it's an accomplishment so i think people are impressed by it even if they're not familiar with it sometimes um, or I get a lot of, oh, like Phantom of the Opera. And while that's not correct, there's still an enthusiasm there and a respect that underlies the question or the reaction. Um, so I've never gotten sort of a negative response or or really one of shock because, I mean, I'm young. You might not look at me and go, that's an opera singer, you know, if you haven't been. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, was there a moment? People are excited by it. Yeah, I would imagine that. Yeah, because we all kind of there's a feeling I think culturally, even in, you know, kind of a a dumbed down culture, which I'm afraid too often we have. Even in this dumbed down culture, there's a feeling that opera is high art, that it's high culture, and it's and it's respect sure. worthy, and it's admirable, and it's something yes. to and I aspire. and I think I think that's true, but I I don't think high culture means inaccessible. I don't think those two things equate. I At agree. least not now. There may have been a time when, when it was more um, one subsection going, but, but not now. There's, there are tickets at all price levels, and it's, it's really operas for everybody. That's cool. I like that, operas for everybody. So in terms of when you became an opera singer, was there one moment as you look back when like the light bulb went on over your head and you said to yourself, this is it, I have to be an opera singer. Was there a moment for you? I think more than anything, it was that I always knew I had to be involved in music. Um, And I wanted to be the best singer that I could be. And I wanted to then use my talent and training in the most exceptional way if I could. And that became opera. That became, through my training, my direction. I don't know that I ever said I have to be an opera singer. I think it kind of found me in in the sense that I was born with a certain voice, quality, and um, ability um, that could go in that direction. I don't think I ever sat down and there was a specific moment that said, I have to be an opera singer. I think I found it through the training, really an undergrad. I knew that I wanted to train my voice classically, and then that's kind of where my voice led me. That's interesting. So sort of a personal evolution into a path that just Mm -hmm. felt good and felt correct. Yeah. I, I knew I had to be in music, and I think it's the love of music and the love of singing and the theatricality surrounding that. That's what I love the most. And I knew I had to be a part of it. And I was willing to go different 
in different directions. You know, whatever life presented me, wherever the opportunity showed itself, I wanted to then go that way and do the best job that I could. So you kind of had a flexibility. And I would about be happy as long as I was involved with music. So you kind right? of had a flexibility about it. Yeah, absolutely. I just knew I had to be involved. You know, I, I came from a small town. I didn't. I never felt like life owed me anything. I knew I had to work for it. I never felt that something should be handed to me. So I was just willing to work and work until, until opportunities came from it. In whichever so, direction that presented itself. So it's kind of you knew this was the ultimate, and and it was so beautiful, and you felt yourself moving towards it. Your voice was suited for it. You're being encouraged. Mm-hmm. You were willing to work hard, and you were willing to be flexible and go where the opportunity was. This is kind of your path. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and I and I found voice teachers. So you know, I found a piano teacher and I found a voice teacher, and I studied both side by side from third grade, you know, through the time when it came when it came time to choose colleges. And I auditioned at I think six six colleges, six conservatories, and you know, I gained acceptance into all of them and then I narrowed wow. down my selection to three. Um I auditioned at Oberlin, Juilliard, Cincinnati, Northwestern, Boston University and I think University of Miami. And then I narrowed it down to Oberlin, Juilliard and Cincinnati. And I went, my voice teacher advised me to take lessons with the teachers at each school um, to whose studios I would be assigned. And while I'm positive that I would have received excellent, you know, training at any of the schools to which I applied, Oberlin really became the obvious choice for me. And from there it all fell into place. That's a cool, that's, that's great. That's what an interesting way to do it and what an intelligent way is to take the lessons that was to make your choice. That was great. I was very fortunate to find the teachers that that I did in in the area that I grew up. Um, my my voice teacher was Kathleen Osborne at the time. She had a private studio in a neighboring town, and she had sent students to um, Dawn May, who became my voice teacher at Oberlin, and really admired her teaching. And my piano teacher was actually a professor at Susquehanna University in my town, and he had sent his children to Oberlin. So both of them had ties there and just really loved the school and the atmosphere there. And it just became very clear that that was the right environment for me to to learn and, you know, develop myself. I wanted to be in an atmosphere that was, well, liberal. I, you know, I loved Oberlin's focus on activism and the atmosphere there wasn't overwhelming or distracting. It's a small town in Ohio. So I really was able to focus. And also it's an undergrad institution. So I knew I wouldn't be competing with grad students and doctoral students for for attention, for lessons, for performance opportunities. We really we really got to get out there and use our training straight away. That's excellent. That's that's a great way to approach your training. I think you, it's a wonderful system of thought you brought to that selection. So in terms of being an well, opera was, singer, go ahead. No, it's, I, I was only going to say that it, you know, it was hard to turn down Juilliard at the time because you know, people in my small hometown really 
only knew that name as sort of a music school of high of high status. So, you know, it was, it was a little hard to turn down, you know, something that that people knew. But, you know, fortunately, I had parents who, you know, supported me and helped me develop a sort of a level head when it came to decision making and the right teachers who, you know, knew that the environment mattered. It wasn't just about the name of an institution. And as it turned out, I ended up studying with a teacher from Juilliard as a student um, at the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia during my grad studies. So it all, it all worked out in the way that it was meant to. That's, my husband's um, grandfather came out of the Curtis School of Music. That's, he was a oh, excellent. pianist. Yeah, so the, that's mm-hmm. how. Um, but, you know, Elizabeth, you're performing everywhere all the time now. Your voice is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. You know, what I love about mm-hmm. your voice is the range, too. It's like every note mm-hmm. sounds beautiful, whether it's at the top or the middle or the bottom. So, obviously, you made the right choice. Well, thank you. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I, I think I did. The, the piano training aids in learning music and has certainly helped with the voice. So, but well, you know, it's a, singing it's, was being definitely an opera singer, the right thing it's, Yeah, it's an, it's an extremely demanding career. So what do you find are the major it challenges is. you've faced in your career thus far? Mm-hmm. And also what are the rewards? Well, the, there are sort of two parts to answering that question, I think. I, I think making the transition from student young artist to professional independent artist was the most challenging period of time for me. My my transitions from undergrad to grad school to young artist program at the York Opera of Chicago went very smoothly. So I was very I was fortunate that way. But at some point to go on to the next stage of being a professional, you have to find the right person, the right manager who's willing to take you under their wing and help you build a career. And you have to find a manager who really knows the voice, how to mold and shape your career, who believes in your specific type of artistry, and then has the right relationships with presenters to bring you to the right platform. Um, And my voice is somewhat unique in color and flexibility, so while now as an established artist those qualities are what set me apart early on, um, it could confuse people as to where you fit in. Because, I mean, people like molds, but I'm keen to break them. Mm-hmm. And now, as a working professional, it's a sort of a different set of extreme demands, mostly on on time and energy. You know, I was I think last year I was home for about five weeks in my actual place of residence, where I wasn't you know working to to sing in Cleveland or or out on a job. So it does take you away from home, but that's sort of what drew me to the career in addition to the love of music the idea of having a job that would allow me to explore the world to just Mm -hmm. travel all of the time and meet new people and see new places and I just maybe it was the part of me that wanted to escape small town life (laughs) that knew that there was more that you know I just want to see it all (laughs) I'm, Uh I'm just hungry to experience and learn and an operatic career gives you that sometimes more than you can even almost manage, but it's certainly a major reward. 
Well, let me ask you in terms of traveling. I noticed you were in YouTube and the videos I, and music I found around the Internet of you. Um, you. There's a lot of languages. How many languages have you had to learn and what's your commitment to those languages? How, you know, tell me about the languages. Sure. Well, in conservatory, you study French, German, and Italian and English diction. So those are your, your primary languages that you train in. However, I've done opera in Czech, Russian, I've done concert work in Spanish. Now, I, I wouldn't call myself fluent, really, in any of those languages. But I have a strong basis for the structure and shape and sound of the languages. So I learn what I need to learn on an individual project basis. You know, you learn all of the text for which you're going to perform. And, and so I'm comfortable in French, German, and Italian to just kind of dive into the score and read it and then kind of fine-tune the, the diction as I go. What was the most challenging language for you to sing in? Um, probably, probably, the, probably Czech, just because there are some, you know, differences in diction that you don't find in other languages however it does have a structure so it becomes it becomes comfortable they all have different challenges my i'm probably most comfortable in italian and german but you know it's 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 what we do it, you know it's part of it's part of the job and it just becomes easier and easier the more you do it that's that's fascinating and then back in terms of travel, you recently made your debut mm-hmm. your debut at the Distinguished Aix-en-Provence Festival in France, and you've also sung mm-hmm. at the Glenbourne Festival in England. How do you find that you have to make adjustments to different cultures when you perf- do you find that you have to make adjustments to different mm-hmm. cultures when you perform in different countries? And if so, what types of adjustments do you have to make? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't really find that I have to make adjustments artistically to different cultures. Um, I think that's one of the truly beautiful things about opera is that it is such an inclusive, unifying art form. Like I said, you know, I might I sing in English while I'm in France, like I did in X or, or Italian in Vienna. And I think, I think people go to opera in part to experience something that broadens their scope. Um, certainly, opera houses are run differently everywhere you go. You might rehearse for three weeks in one place, six in another, but that's more of a managerial difference as opposed to cultural. So ultimately I don't think it makes that much of a difference. Opera's special that way. (laughs) Uh And there are extensive travel demands. You've been talking about how much you enjoy it, but you were only home five weeks last year. So how do you manage the travel demands and still have a home life? Well, I think more and more I've come to view the career as one sort of infinitely flexible lifestyle so that I don't know if that makes sense, but it's, I can't really separate the two. It's one just flows into the next and it's just part of this cycle that, that keeps going. Um, But I have a a husband who understands what I do and is tremendously supportive of this career in a lifestyle. He actually trained as a singer, but then became um, a recording engineer Mm-hmm. So he uses those skills, but he understands what the career demands and helps me support it, helps support me in it. And so it's just it's just what I know. Well, let's hear it for supportive it, husbands. It, those are the best. And Yes, um, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. 
it's one thing I think to do it on your own and you know it, it you just come into your own routine but when you when you have a partner it does ask a lot of them to not have you there and there's lots of time spent apart um but yeah the the supportive partner really <laughs> really helps <laughs> find and the how balance do you just, how do you decide what roles you're going to sing does your husband help you choose them? Do you discuss roles with him? Is he supposed to be your manager? Well, yeah, when I when I get a call, I mean, the houses know what my voice is and what I'm suited for. Um, but sometimes I get something that I haven't obviously performed yet. So when I when I'm offered a role, I I just take it home or take it to the nearest piano and I and I sing through it to see that it's comfortable and that it suits my voice and then I have to take into consideration what music I have to prepare that season to make sure that the demands of preparation are reasonable. Do I, you know, do I have time to learn, develop, and memorize the piece? And if all of those things come together, then, then I'll take on the project. And how do you know if something suits your voice? What does that mean, if it suits your voice? Well, I mean, the that it's for a mezzo-soprano, that it falls within my comfortable range, note range. And anyone that's hiring me, they know which roles are for mezzo-soprano, which roles are for soprano. So I'll get offered things that are within my voice range. Now, for me, I'm comfortable in contralto repertoire and mezzo-soprano repertoire. Um, I started out singing contralto rep, and so my low register is very comfortable, but ultimately my voice is a mezzo-soprano register, so I can sing the high notes as well. So sometimes I get offers that there's a variety of different colors that you might use for an individual role. And, you know, I have to make sure that my color matches the character, matches the piece. It's it's just on a case-by-case basis, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who's been the most fun character to to sing so far? I think I'll have to say Hensel and Hensel and Gretel. You were a boy, right? Because, yeah, I that that's one of the exciting things about being a mezzo-soprano. I get to play boys quite a bit. So I really have a broad range of characters that I get to explore, which is really exciting. And Hensel is just just fun from beginning to end. He goes through such a broad cycle of emotion and it's just thrilling to be a child for two and a half hours straight, just to be a little kid and feel everything so freshly and clearly, you know, and, and children, they just express things in their rawest form. And it's, it's pure joy from beginning to end. I just, I have to point out, I watched on YouTube the, a little clip of you preparing to become Hensel and, you mm-hmm. they cut your gorgeous blonde hair and you donated to children. <laughs> yeah, with we hair did. Loss. So do you want to talk mm-hmm. about that? The donating your hair because you said that you've sure. done that. Sure, I've 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 done it a handful of times. I first did it. I took my senior portraits, my senior year of high school. I and then I immediately cut my hair off to to chin level and I donated my hair then. And ever since. I have gone in cycles of growing it very long and then sort of cutting it to chin length and sending it off to either Locks of Love or other organizations. And it's just, it's something I've always, I've always done. I've felt like I was blessed with a decent head of hair and, you know, it was a way to give back. 
it's really nice that you do that. I think that's really lovely. Um, giving <laughs> is it's really important to donate what we can. Also, there are great costumes mm-hmm. I noticed in that the Hensel costume in that yeah. YouTube video. <laughs> no, it it was it, it was a lot of fun, and I also performed Hensel at Glyndebourne, both on tour and during the festival season. And you can see those photos on my website. But he he had sort of a striped polo shirt and long baggy shorts and scuffed up sneakers, and it, it, it's so much fun. It, it's so much fun. Well, what is the process of learning an operatic role? Do you still work with a voice teacher or a vocal coach? What's the difference between them? Well, mostly it's a lot of hard work at the piano that I do myself. I Maybe I'm a little bit unique that way. I, Because of my piano background, I can thoroughly go through the score on my own. So I know what the orchestra is doing. I know how my vocal line fits into that. I learn my notes. I prepare the phrasing. I do all of that on my own. Now, I will go to a voice teacher on occasion because we all need to kind of have regular maintenance <laughs> that way. Uh-huh. And I do see occasionally my, my voice teacher from Oberlin, Don May. And then as far as the vocal coach goes, um, most of that work I do on my own. But for to finesse the language and for maybe something very new, I might see a vocal coach. And they really go over the fine-tuning. They're not going to get involved with your vocal technique. So teachers, voice teachers focus directly on your voice and vocal coaches focus on what you're doing with your voice in the context of a piece and learning that piece and shaping a role. But they won't generally get involved with the actual technical production of the sound. Mm-hmm. And I see you've played Hermia in a bunch of different um, performances in a bunch of different shows. So yeah. what's it like to play the same character in different operas? Well, it's a lot of fun. It's fun to take a character that you feel that you know the essence of who she is and then place her in different settings. So it's a fun mental challenge, the fun exercise to take what you know and then let it play out in different scenarios. So that's that's been the fun in traveling around, you know, coming to different directors' ideas of where the opera takes place and putting her into that. It's it's a fun challenge, and it's kept when you do something so many times, it really keeps it fresh and fun as an artist to re envision her. And then having done the Enchanted Island, which was a pastiche of. Um, of Britain, I mean, sorry, of A Midsummer Night's Dream and The Tempest by Shakespeare put together, <laughs> it, wow. it, it that was a fun challenge to re, reimagine the story entirely. That sounds fantastic. It, it so, was. <laughs> so I'm now going to ask about another artistic interest of yours, and that's mm-hmm. that you have a wonderful photo blog on your website, elizabethdeshong.com. It's called A Singer's Suitcase. So how mm-hmm. did you become interested in photography? I mean, it's not like you're a full-time artist or anything. <laughs> how long have you had the blog? <laughs> you know, what type of photography? I'd like to, to keep things fresh. Yeah, I, my, my blog, you can access it from my website, elizabethdeshong.com, or separately at asingersuitcase.com. And I've always enjoyed taking pictures, but I think my travel inspired me to take a deeper interest. With living out of a suitcase, it limits what you can 
take back with you when you leave a place. But with digital photography, I could bring back every place, person, experience, you know, without any baggage overage fees or anything. You know, and I wanted to share these travels with my family and friends and share sort of the deeper experience of what travel gives to a person and the little things that make each place unique. And I found photography to be the perfect outlet for that. And are you using a special camera? You use your iPhone? I mean, how do you do this? Do you take selfies? I use I use whatever is handy. I mean, I have just a point-and-shoot Canon. I use my iPhone, but then I have a Canon 7D. Well, is it a 5D now? I think I changed. But <laughs> So I have a variety of cameras that I'll use. and it, But it's really just whatever's handy when the moment strikes. And it's not always about the most aesthetically beautiful picture. It's what strikes me in a day. I'm, I'm interested in the, the little things that would otherwise go unnoticed. Interesting. And do you think that your musical skills transferred over to your photography? I, I think it does. I think to be a good musician, you have to be interested in the details. And I think, that's what makes a good photo, the details, people seeing the little things within a larger a larger picture. You know, I mean, someone might look at a landscape and see green fields and mountains, but the photographer might look and see the one colorful flower in that field or the one tree that has a nest in it. And musicians are constantly finding colors and, and shaping phrases and adding detail to a bigger picture and finding that detail. And in the end, both mediums seek to evoke feeling. So I think they they go hand in hand. That's very cool. Uh, so do you update your blog regularly? Is this something every time you travel somewhere, there's going to be new photographs? No, my um, a Singer Suitcase, I started on January 1, 2011. And I take a photo every single day. And I post it every single day. Wow. So... Whatever That's in that day strikes me, <laughs> it is. I mean, it's it's a good sort of moment of meditation in a way. It takes me out of whatever, if it's been a stressful rehearsal day or a stressful travel day, I still find one minute to find something interesting, out of the ordinary, a moment of appreciation to share. And very rarely, to be honest, is my blog focused on, you know, opera or my job. Sometimes it is, but it's really about finding the little things along the way that you that aren't things, mm-hmm. but that you keep with you. That's very that's very cool. So, you have all of this commitment, but you also have this almost like a discipline, like a, a to step outside of your daily work and take a moment apart. Yeah, because I think ultimately all art benefits from experience outside of your genre. It's what you bring to your art, the, those, the things that strike you, the emotions that they you know, provoke within you. That's what makes your art great, the things that support it. And taking that moment, I, re- I do. I think, it, I think they aid each other in giving me balance. So what would you say is your philosophy of music or what is your philosophy as a of art as an opera singer? 
I don't, I mean, I don't know what I would say as a philosophy, but my goal, I guess, is to just present truth on stage, to, to live in the moment and be honest and sing in the most natural way so that people get all of me when I'm on stage. It's, it's such a demanding career that I, I don't understand going out and not giving 100% of what you can give. And I don't know, that's, that's, that's how I want to be. I want to give all of myself to everything that I pursue. So I just, I just want to bring the most honest, in-the-moment, truthful thing to the stage that I can and to make every, every performance a little better than the last. And do you feel you're doing that? You know, it's it's a live art form, and sometimes you you may not meet your own goals. You know, it's sometimes you're sick. Sometimes, you know, you rely on other people also to get your job done. So sometimes things don't always line up. But so far, so far I do. I, I you know I I set my personal standard so high that. It, when I'm not 100%, it still, I think, registers as something that that is worth seeing and hearing. And did did you ever have a moment when you walked off stage? And I'm going to ask you about two moments. One where you walked off stage and thought, mm-hmm. oh, my God, what horrible, what did I do? And slap yourself in the head. Or another moment when you walked off stage and you thought, oh, my God, that was better than I dreamt I could do. Do Have you had those kind of peak moments and valley moments? Well, I don't know. I think the key to giving a good performance is not judging yourself while you're doing it. So I'm not – I tend not to go back. You know, I I tend not to walk off stage and think about it. It's just about going forward and doing the best. I can't – self-judge and do my do my job at the same time you know that and that's that's a hard lesson to learn and to to, to get to the point of trusting yourself enough to do that um so that's self and i i forgive myself if things aren't 100 percent yeah you have you know to i'll try to do better but sorry go ahead no it's just i think what you're starting to talk about now is self-care as an artist I mean, you're you're only human, and it's it's an exceptional demand on stage, of your voice, of your energy, and you you have to forgive yourself for moments of being human. But honestly, if someone's out there giving 100% of themselves, a few errors don't matter because that's just their humanness coming through, and that's what I want to see on stage. Mhm. So who who are your role models? Who inspires you? I, I'm always careful in answering that question, and I, I, I don't think it's any specific one person. I think it's a type of person. It's a type of artist. It's a, a work ethic. I just strive to be someone that walks in prepared, who walks into rehearsals wanting to work with their colleagues to create together and I've been fortunate to work around some of the best artists out there in opera and and theater um, and it's the type of artistry that 
inspires me. It's not one specific one specific person. So it's I think it goes back to some of the things you were talking about earlier, this commitment, flexibility, openness, you know, willingness to work hard and to work with other people. Mhm. Yeah, it, it really is. I the type of artist I want to be is also the type of person I want to be. And if I'm trying to cultivate the best version of both of those things, then I have to be headed towards the correct goal for me. And where do you see your career in five years and 10 years and 20 years? Well, that's the thing. I Ultimately, more of the same. I, I have been so fortunate to work at the highest level in my career. I, I truly, the best artists, the best opera houses in the world. And I'm so exceptionally grateful for that. And I just want to keep working to the level that keeps me in those houses. And I don't vocally, there are lots of operas that I love and that if I happen to do them, that will be great. But I don't want to push myself vocally in a direction that maybe isn't healthy or that would make singing, say, some of the Rossini not appropriate. Because mm-hmm. when you, it's, it's sort of a vocal choice, but Rossini and the bel canto works. Um, they require a flexibility. And if you go into heavier reps, sometimes your voice becomes less flexible. It be, you can't sort of step back from that. So I just I take it as it comes and what feels comfortable. When it's presented to me, I'll sing through it. If it's comfortable then, then I know in three years it will most likely be all the more comfortable. And then I'll, t- I'll take the role. It's taking mm-hmm. it as it comes. And what do you have coming up this coming season? You know, what do you have going on? I've mentioned for listeners that um, on August 1st there's going to be uh, – Mm-hmm. Let's see, the radio station WFMT in Chicago is going to be broadcasting the Barber of Seville, and people can go to WFMT.com to find that. But what are some of the other things That's you right. have coming up, you know, what's in, in the next period? Of well, I, I will be singing three roles in Berg's Lulu at the Met. I believe you mentioned that as well in the intro. I'll be singing Fenena in Verdi's Nabucco at Lyric, of Chicago, Lyric Opera of Chicago in January, February of 2016. And then I'll sing Arsace in Rossini's Semiramide in Bordeaux. And then Calbo in Rossini's Mametto Secondo at Canadian Opera Company. And the um, Berg's Lulu will be broadcast to movie theaters. If you go to medopera.com, if you go online and look up the Met Opera, you'll be able to find those dates and find the specific day for the broadcast and see it in your local theater. That's cool. So that's what's coming up over the next like season. Right. Those those are the announced dates and lots of more exciting things to come. And people should go to elizabethdeshong.com and that you'll keep the news for your singing will be and your performances will be updated on your website. Yes, all of my announced dates are on my on my website elizabethdeshong.com. My um management company Cami also has my dates. Uh, people can follow me on Instagram at E.G. Deshong. That's also my Twitter handle. And I announce things as they come up. Sometimes things pop into the schedule short notice. So I keep everybody in the know. Also on Facebook. Oh, you are on Facebook. 
Yes, I have an artist page, Elizabeth Deshawn. Great. Uh, so people can find you on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, mm-hmm. and your website. That's right. And what have you found to be the best tools you have to help you on your path of becoming an opera singer? And, you know, you're really a star now. I mean, the opera world is in love with you. The reviews are glowing, and your voice is amazing. So what have you found your best tools? And you've mentioned your work ethic, and you've mentioned flexibility. What else would you say is an important tool? I mean, those are the those are the primary things. But really, just keeping keeping that, even though it's a general lifestyle, keeping a work life balance, making time to make sure that I'm okay, <laughs> checking uh-huh. in with myself. You know, just it's demanding on you physically. So you've got to stay health, healthy, mentally and physically. So self care as an artist on the mental, physical, psychological levels. Absolutely. The the temptation is always there to say yes if something comes in. Yes, I'll do that. I'll fill every gap in my schedule. But but it's really managing your time so that you can do every job in a quality way, not just take on more work. So I know um, I heard from your publicist that you're a vegetarian and you're dedicated to animal mm-hmm. causes. So how did you become involved with this? which causes are especially dear to your heart, and do you feel like your vegetarianism helps you stay healthy? I do, actually. I, I, I made the choice to become vegan about six and a half years ago. Uh, I had done a lot of reading about the environment, and I felt that it was the environmentally responsible thing to do for me. And with more education on the topic surrounding my choice, you know, topics surrounding my choice, it became a choice of health and compassion as well. It's, I just wanted to make an impact. And it's hard with not living in, in one place for very long periods of time to make direct change in my immediate community. And mm-hmm. I decided that I could vote with my dollar for the things that matter to me. And mm-hmm. in that way, by being vegan and vegetarian, I cast my vote every day in favor of sustainability and ethical treatment of animals and my own long-term health. Is it difficult to be a vegan on the road? <laughs> yeah, no. I I managed to be completely vegan at my home. And then at times, in order to maintain my energy levels while traveling, I'll eat vegetarian. Internationally, it can, it can be tricky finding quality vegan options. Um, I guess the way I see it is nobody is 100% anything. So if I can be mm-hmm. vegan 80% of the time and vegetarian for the other 20, I'm still making a positive impact. That's true. And how did you become involved with it? Was there? Do you have pets? Did you grow up with pets? I mean, I do. I just maybe. I mean, maybe it was Oberlin sort of <laughs> helping to solidify the things that I already had an interest in. But I just, I just have a strong interest in in the environment and contributing positively to the world we live in. And I just felt that I was very impassioned to do something, and if I had this knowledge, then if I wouldn't act on it, who was going to? You know, it's, it's, it's not a convenient choice, but for me it was a necessary one. And, and it's, so it's just become a part of your life, like part of one of the habits um, that you live yeah, your life Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one thing that I can, I can sort of contribute to just as much like just like my blog is something that I do daily. It's another thing that I do that is a choice 
for me and helps nurture me. And I do feel that I stay healthier, that I have a lot more energy. And I, I know I, I rarely get sick. And I certainly don't get food poisoning. <laughs> <laughs> That's good when you're traveling. What's a, what's a fun fact people might not know about you? I do cross stitch. <laughs> uh, like with um, a needle and thread? Like a needle and thread. <laughs> I'm exceptionally crafty. <laughs> I, really? cool. I I don't sit still. I have this desire to constantly be productive, <laughs> but sometimes I need to not be singing or, you know, to relax, and so I knit or cross stitch. And that was my next question was going to be what do you do in your spare time? So is knitting and cross stitching? Yeah, and I mean, my husband and I hike. We, you know, we we like to kayak. We we like to be outdoors. But but when I'm taking it easy, yeah, I'm I'm I am a crafty person. I w- <laughs> I will find some project to take on. I will always have one in the works. <laughs> so when you're traveling around like the world, flying to different opera houses to perform and moving to different mm-hmm. hotels, um, are you do you have a little suitcase with your cross stitch and knitting needles in it? I do. T- I tend to put. My project, yeah, right in right in my backpack with my laptop and my iPad and my camera. It's it's just right in there for me to grab if I want it. I I will often have it with me. Certain jobs I can I'm better able to do it, but most of the time. Well, that's cool. That's fun. Well, <laughs> but we have only a couple minutes left, and I just would would you just share one more time with us where listeners can find you on the internet and where they can find out more about you and your work, all your websites. And just one more time, tell us. Absolutely. ElizabethDeshong.com is the first place to check for all of my general information, my biography, production photos, my schedule reviews. That's the hub of all the information for accessing my photo blog Go to a singersuitcase.com, or you can again access it from elizabethdeshong.com. You can follow me on Twitter at egdeshong, so e g d e s h o n g is my handle, and it's also my handle on Instagram. Instagram shares more selfies, more personal information, more photos than my blog, so you'll see a little more of my personal home life and. It's a little more me-focused, I guess. Um, but Twitter will also have a lot of that information, and Twitter will have all the up-to-date happenings, some rehearsal information, gigs that pop into my schedule, and some of the things I'm passionate about. I, I often tweet my interest in the Earth Island Institute, different animal causes. So if you don't see opera right away, you're still in the right place. It'll be a mix of things. Well, because you're multifaceted and you have a lot of interests and passions. I do, so, and I and I think that you know those are all things that I bring to the stage with me, and so you know, it, I hope that people find them interesting and come along for the ride with me. Well, I thank you so much for being on the show, Elizabeth. You were wonderful. I have to thank my husband. He told me you'd be great, and you are. And thank you. And I <laughs> no, so thank you very much. No, thank you for having me. I'd like to encourage listeners to go to elizabethdeshong.com to find out more about you and your work. And um, to everyone who's listening, thanks so much for joining us. Please come back next week on a special day and time, Monday, August 3rd at 11, to hear Dr. Bruce Cole. Thanks again. See you next week.
This has been Tracy L. Slatten on the Independent Artists and Thinkers Network. Thanks for joining us. Come back next week.